Beer, Cheese, and Murder is a true crime podcast about Wisconsin from Wisconsin. Due to the nature of true crime, this podcast contains explicit and graphic content which may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. She's a murder. I'm Erica. Joining me, we have, and we lost Dina. Oh, there she is. Oh, goes. yeah. What happened to Dina? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we should go in the reverse then. Oh, here, give her I'm a here. Yes. <laughs> we lost you. I, well, because it said recording in progress, I went to hit OK, and apparently <laughs> I hit leave meeting. And all of a sudden, I was like, what happened? <laughs> so. Sorry. Bye. 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 All right. Who are you people? Bye. I'm Dina. Your family? <laughs> uh, Jill. And Kayla. And did Terry say? And Terry. We are really bad at this today. Dina tried to leave the Rusty. meeting before it even started. And right? <laughs> maybe you guys have been pre-gaming too much. I'm sober. <laughs> That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> All the early meetings were <laughs> I just have one right. one sip in. So all right. Well, on that note, what are we all drinking and eating today? I'm enjoying a glass of Door Peninsula Wine Winery's chocolate cherry wine. Ooh. I've never had that. How is it? It's good. Is it really sweet? Um, you can taste the chocolate. It's not too sweet, but it's good. Nice. Ah, okay. Nice. Well, I'm not. I'm not having any alcohol today. I just have water. I uh, had a little night out last night, so I needed a little break. But I'm having one of the more Wisconsin snacks today that you can have. I'm having Wisconsin sushi, a.k.a. ham, cream, cheese, pickle roll-ups. <laughs> so that's my little snacky today. That's Wait, did you say there's pickles in it? Ham, cheese. You've never had Wisconsin sushi, Kayla? Make no. it. I've it's never a pickle in the middle, cream cheese, and then it's ham. You roll it up mm. like a little hors d'oeuvre. I uh, request oh that for our next the best day ever. cabin trip. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I mean, I guess this week I had my first punchki, so so that was a. Uh, Are you serious? Am I calling them tchotchkes? You're <laughs> This little Polish girl didn't know right. what a punchki was. Had but never had one. First. She had it when she was a child. She just didn't know what it was. Well, I probably just thought it was a jelly donut. Exactly. <laughs> it is a jelly donut. Yeah. But it's you know, I was too scared and everyone was like, it's just a jelly donut. And I was like, oh, oh okay. Well, <laughs> the thing is, is that the traditional ones, which Sean did get some, have like raisins and prunes in them. And I'm like, yeah, I'll mm. take the raspberry, please. <laughs> I tried the raisin. I thought it was delicious. I thought I it was like really raisin. good. They are good. Are the you regular? Just light and doughy. <laughs> what? 
Are you regular today after your prune raisin? Uh... <laughs> I didn't think it had prunes in it. I don't know. I didn't notice anything. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Um, I don't. I don't like raisins, like ah. at all. Well, I Dina, I, I never heard that called. What do you say, Wisconsin sushi? Wisconsin I, sushi. I never heard that. I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm glad I could teach you all something today. <laughs> Am I up next then already? Yes, chill. All right. Well, I am enjoying what Erica got for me as part of my Christmas gift. And it's a Cider Boys Grand Mimosa Apple Orange Hard Cider. And this is made from or out of um, Stevens Point, Wisconsin, bottled by Cider Boys Cider Company. And it's very delicious, very refreshing. I can totally see me doing this um, in the summer after one of our podcasts and maybe uh, Sunday brunch or something. Sunday and fun then day. I have, what? Sunday fun day. Yes. And then I have to go with it some Bella Vitano cheese, uh, Sartori cheese, which is out of Plymouth, Wisconsin. And I got this when we went to um, the Mars Cheese Castle. It's garlic and er herb, garlic and herb, <laughs> Bella Vitano. Herb, herb. Really? I know. herb I is a man. I'm like, herb. Herb is herb. the spice. I hope there's no herb in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, but um, it's very delicious. And I've seen all like the different kinds of Bella Vitano and I love them all with the, um, whether they have the Merlot, the, um, yeah, that one's a good one. The Merlot. Whiskey. Yeah. And, but I had never seen this garlic and herb. So I <laughs> snatched it up at the Mars Cheese Castle. It's very good. The thing I'm giggling at is I think that while we were at Mars Cheese Castle and she grabbed it, she was saying herb. And I was like, it's, <laughs> Herb. And so the fact that she said it again. <laughs> like, I think when I just look at it, like I see the H and I feel like it should be a hard H, but now I'm getting into herb again, hard herb. I don't know. <laughs> let's not get let's not get herb hard, okay? As body yeah. like dies laughing. Yes. You're getting into okay. hard herb. Hard this herb. A, this is a family show. <laughs> All right, yeah. I'm done. About really murder. Done. Yeah. Okay. About murder. Show about murder. <laughs> the family yeah. show about murder. Don't talk about hard herb. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I uh, was at the gym right before this, so I feel like I might crack open a uh, Miller Lite since it's pretty close to water. Um, <laughs> and then I also have some Sartori Belvitana, but it's the black pepper. Trying to pronounce it. <laughs> it's uh, the black pepper um, Belvitano, and it's really, really good. And it's really good if you um, shred it on top of like pasta or something. Um, oh, that was a good. Yeah. Yeah, it's really yummy. So I wouldn't yeah. have thought of that. Usually I just yeah. think of eating Belvitano, you know, in little cubes, but yeah, I bet that would be good. Probably yeah, good. during COVID, I had this like health kick, which lasted quite briefly nonetheless um because I love my carbs but I was buying like the veggie pastas and stuff so I got the spiraled um 
what was it? Spiraled squash or something. I forget what spiraled butternut squash, something like that. I forget what it was, but I would make that. And then I would do, um, just the Sartori Belvitano black pepper grated cheese on top of it after I sauteed in a pan and it was delish. Aunt Terry, you got anything? I'm drinking water. I got an early morning meeting. Oh, okay. I, I'm drinking my normal flow water. <laughs> All right, so then I'll wrap us up with this portion. So I'm also actually drinking a Cider Boys cider, um, but I'm drinking la la. The yours is a purple label. What is that? Well, it's blue. The lighting is probably not. Oh, uh, it's a <laughs> yeah. It definitely looks purple. It's um first press, so it is uh says everything changes when you bite into a bottle of first press traditional hard apple cider eyes of friends sparkle passion overflows and perhaps the best thing on earth the anticipation of sweet crisp and tart taste hard cider fireworks revel in its energy grin to the skies save an extra for yourself so we got hard, hard cider and hard, hard herb. herb. Uh, <laughs> um, Erica, I'm next to you. I'm next to you in the um, Zoom. Uh, Zoom. So I'm cheersing you. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> but no, these are really easy drinking. Um, they're about 5% ABB. It seems to be pretty standard across. Uh, I've had, they have a lot of different ones, like different flavors. So they've got like peach, strawberry. Uh, there's like a pineapple one really easy drinking it's like a really good go-to like if you're just not feeling a full beer I feel like cider was actually my gateway into drinking beer because I it you know you have to acquire the taste and I feel like cider is sort of that fruity flavor but it still has that kind of a similar body as a beer if that makes sense um but that's kind of how I first sort of got my feet wet in the direction of beer drinking, I suppose. Um, but as you had mentioned, the Cider Boys is out of Stevens Point. And I believe it's actually, because if you go on their website and you click tour where it's made, it takes you back to the Point Brewery website. So it might actually be a subsidiary of um, Point Brewery. Um, I will say though, on the cider train, shout out to Island Orchard Cider in out of Ellison Bay, which I yeah. think it's actually out of um, what Washington Island, but um, yeah, Washington delicious. They have a really yeah. awesome tasting room up there in Door County, real cute spot. You can do flights of cider. Um, and even though I'm not like in love with like sweet ciders and that kind of thing, it's really fun to do anyways. So I highly suggest for people to go check it out. Yeah. We've done it a couple times. Kayla and I have done it yeah. a couple times. And I don't think that most of them are that sweet, actually. So yeah. I think that a lot of people, you know, they they do have a lot of the brute. So well, and very, um, very tasty, super nice staff up there. Yeah, there's some unique flavors as well. I'm actually particularly fond of the apple lavender. The lavender, yeah. Yes. That one's actually yes. good. Yeah. And of course, they have like the apple cherry to bring in the Door County vibe. But oh, yeah. yeah, okay. Oh. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, I didn't know Cider Boys was part of like the Point Brewery uh, affiliates. So Yeah, I didn't either until I clicked on the see where it's made kind of thing. So I don't really care. It tastes good either way. So, um, <laughs> but I'm also kind of, as you guys are talking, I'm able to quick sneak some of my snack in. So I do have some popcorn, which is freshly popped 
uh, in my microwave. Is it is it from Wisconsin? <laughs> from Wisconsin, I made a special trip to Elegant Farmer. Oh, that's right, Monago, Wisconsin, just to get popcorn seeds um, from there. And I actually got a ton of popcorn seeds. There's like so many different varieties. This particular popcorn is apple blossom pink baby rice popcorn i'm sorry oh, can you say that, that again that <laughs> yeah baby apple, apple blossom, blossom pink? pink baby rice popcorn it says on the bottle it says pretty as pink and sweet as can be this variety pops big and melts in your mouth does it it is actually very good and like i think is there any herb in it (laughs) well maybe some good old-fashioned dirt but no no herb (laughs) but no i've uh gotten into the habit so i had gotten um compliments of terry for christmas one year i got this really nice little microwave popper which is good for like individual size portions and um so i just it has like a fill line for the top. So you just pour in the right amount of popcorn seeds. And then I just take like a dab of coconut oil um, and swipe it on the top because then it melts into it as it's popping. So it's it's very light. It's very fresh. It's not like weighed down by oil or um, butter. And then I just sprinkle popcorn salt on it and it's like super delicious. So I've gotten really into the habit of doing that. And now I've got probably five or six different types of Wisconsin made popcorn. So nice. I didn't I even know that we had like Wisconsin a, made popcorn. Yeah. I would like to take a Corn. poll right now. Um, how many out of, out of 10 people, how many people do you think own a popcorn maker? Cause I feel like I had one when, when Nine. I was nine. Like out I, of 10. I, I don't. Do you eat popcorn? I just do it. I just do it over the stove. Like in a oh, okay. kettle. Right. I have an air popper. Oh, I buy the pop bags which are like I, eight calories. The I do the microwave no I don't but like I'm microwave popcorn like, as much is it like five out of ten people is it like three out of ten but people how and the same how, how do you microwave the popcorn it's I have an air popper it, you buy it the the micro you buy the microwave oh, you buy, Air you buy, I well over I over the open fire I don't know well no I mean microwave popcorn has all kinds of crap in it so Erica's taking oh, that out you know that's what I love I love <laughs> that added <laughs> crap the fake butter and stuff and I add extra right. stuff but I don't know but so yeah, Erica's just, doing know. it the healthier way okay yeah. that, I guess I need to come to Erica's house for a popcorn but I guess the same goes with like waffle makers you know like the only reason I have a waffle maker is because somehow my mom had two so my brother got one and I got one (laughs) I don't know why she had two waffle makers but like a popcorn maker I feel like I had one as a kid I feel like that was a thing in a like a family household but we used to have one all the time growing up I think it depends on the family like that's just something that we used to always do like Saturday nights we popcorn and go down and watch a movie as a family Mm -hmm. you know it's something I really want to do with the kids. My, my dad and I are have popcorn for dinner every now and then, people. So um, definitely definitely have popcorn popper at my dad's. I have one. My mom and stepdad have one at their house and at their lake house. We're just a popcorn family, I guess. Mm-hmm. Good snack. It is a good snack. It's a, yeah, as it's long a as good you snack. take all the crap out of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Sorry, and you don't buy the free the, bag. I eat the shitty popcorn <laughs> with shitty stuff in it. It's still delicious and low calorie. People at those factories, Kayla, with the butter were like dying. Like it was toxic or I, I, something like that, wasn't it? I kid you not with the, I think the fake butter for popcorn. We, I've, I've got, I'm going to look it up. I don't believe you. All right. I, I don't believe well, you. Continue on. Let Erica yeah, continue. Erica, and maybe the next, the next show we'll find popcorn out. Deaths. <laughs> okay. So. Um, I did choose, uh, so popcorn, we may not necessarily, um, I don't know, popcorn, we grow corn, which then becomes popcorn. So corn is a primary crop within Wisconsin. So my Wisco fact is sort of related. It's not about corn, but it is about crops in Wisconsin. So one of the things that came up as I was researching the case for this episode was a little fact about tobacco and Wisconsin that I didn't know. So tobacco was once a major crop in Wisconsin. So tobacco was first introduced to Wisconsin in 1844 by two Ohio natives. And by 1885, it was grown on around 16,000 acres of farmland by 4,000 farmers. So it was pretty big. Hmm. Um, by 1916 to 1921, tobacco profitability had increased tremendously and production peaked during those years. During that period of time, about 45,700 acres of tobacco were harvested, peaking at 59 million pounds in 1921. Wow. I wouldn't have thought the weather would be good for it. There is a specific area, I think, where it primarily is um, grown. Um, so tobacco in Wisconsin then and now is grown solely for chewing tobacco. And according to a farmer, former farmer from Edgerton, the growing and harvesting of tobacco was and is mainly a family endeavor. They occasionally hire laborers to, for aid during the harvest season, but it was familial and cultural tradition as much as it was a business. Norwegian immigrants especially became associated with the growing of tobacco um, this was not because tobacco was a main crop in Norway. Tobacco actually was not grown there at all. Old American settlers, known locally as Yankees, had been harvesting tobacco before the new waves of immigrants came in the mid-19th century and had brought the te techniques used for the cultivation of tobacco from New England. The pockets of European settlers learned trades from the Yankees, including tobacco farming, and the largest of these pocket communities was the Norwegian one. Um, communities, communities tended to reside close together and stay in the same trades at the time. Since the Norwegians were less adapted to the U.S. customs and language, they continued with their tobacco farming while the Yankees moved on to different endeavors they could more easily pursue. Um, so the Nor Norwegian settlers moved to southwestern Wisconsin, where a glacier had thousands of years previously brought large quantities of dark and fertile soil. As a result, the growing of tobacco became concentrated in areas of the Wisconsin River or north of, uh, north of the Wisconsin River, like Viroqua, and south of the river, like Stoughton and Edgerton. So I think that particular area, because of the nature of the soil, that's where it was more uh, conducive to growing tobacco. When I was in like eighth and ninth grade, I begged my mom to, to let me go work 
picking tobacco because he made really, really good money. And I had friends that did it and I wanted to do it so bad. And she's like, absolutely not. So I never got to do it as a job. And then I found out like it's ridiculously hard. So I probably wouldn't have been cut out for it anyway, but they paid really, really well. And even for, you know, young teenagers back in the eighties. So I wanted to do it. Well, I apparently, that story. Uh, um, apparently picking in tobacco fields is much safer than working in a popcorn factory because heaven forbid Jill is correct. I Googled the shit out of this right now. Told um, you. <laughs> sorry, but newsflash apparently bronchiolitis obliterans is an irreversible lung disease which was first associated with inhalation of butter flavorings which is diacetyl and another fun fact is that diacetyl fun. is um in wine so diacetyl is like the buttery aroma or flavor that you perceive in wine as well so i wonder if that's cancer causing in some way. Well, it um, sounds like you I just believe don't it, want to inhale it. Right. Well, I mean, if you're inhale, I like to inhale my wine. Sure. Don't <laughs> inhale it. Um, you I didn't inhale it. Bag of popcorn and inhales. <laughs> but no, well, shoot. I mean, I do inhale my popcorn, but like, like just eating it fast and that. <laughs> but no, this is kind of crazy. But yeah, fun fact for people. Um, I don't know that that's a fun fact. <laughs> yeah, no, a bunch of people that died. Fun fact. Disturbing. Disturbing food fact. Um, but anyway, yeah, no, that's Jill. I totally thought you were making shit up. I was like, where did she read this? This is weird. But no, that's um, that would be Trishy. Okay. My mom, Trishy, knows all <laughs> that stuff. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All right. So just a couple more facts to wrap up our Wisco fact, and then we can dive into the case. But the popcorn factory was a pretty big fact, I think, too. <laughs> but it's not a Wisco fact. That's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, okay. So for a long time, tobacco was very profitable for farmers and the hard work done in its farming earned the family's luxuries they might not otherwise be able to afford. As the 20th century progressed, however, the value of tobacco per pound dropped due to an oversaturation of the market and a decrease in consumption, likely as a result of health concerns. Not surprising. Mm -hmm. um, today, tobacco is grown on only about 1,000 to 2,000 acres in Wisconsin, so it's drastically reduced in volume. I feel bad for the farmers, but it's a good thing for people to not be using tobacco products yeah i mean there are other crops that can be can be grown in that area i'm sure if the soil was good for tobacco there's got to be something else that would you know do well as well but so uh like i said that kind of piqued my interest as it came up as part of the case that i researched today or for today so let's kind of dive into that because we've got a lot of ground to cover here so the case that I'm covering for this episode is that of Clara Olson. I actually got a book for Christmas off my wish list because I have murder books on my Christmas wish list um, about this case. So there's quite a lot of information. It's very interesting. It's also historical crimes. So there's a lot of historical context within the story as well. Um, so it is interesting, although it did 
it was it also made it more difficult to follow the actual story of the case when they were kind of peppering all the historical information in it. Um, but so a lot of what I'm going to be talking about came from this book and it's called Murder in Wisconsin, the Clara Olson case, and it's by Larry Sheckle. Larry Sheckle. Yeah, so I actually do have, um, we'll be reading a couple of notes and letters out of this book as well as we go through the details. So I'm just going to jump right into it. Um, so this uh, took place in Rising Sun, Wisconsin, which is essentially western Wisconsin near La Crosse area. Um, so the story, like I said, was a historical story. Um, so it takes place in Crawford County, Wisconsin in 1926. Crawford County is located in the heart of what is considered the Driftless area, which is- Did you say 1826 or 1926? I don't know what I said, but it's 1926. Okay. <laughs> Dina's on, on radar here for uh, the numbers well, coming out of Erica's mouth. We know. No, 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 no. I just didn't hear correctly. I was just, just yes. making sure I heard correctly. Yes, it is 1926. So Crawford County is located in the heart of what is considered the Driftless area, which is an expansive countryside that the glaciers during the Ice Age did not pass over, thus not leaving behind the sediment material known as drift. It is a steep, rugged landscape where numerous cold water streams cut into the ancient bedrock. Those who live there refer to it as the hill country, and it is also known as Little Norway, due to the large population of Norwegian immigrants who settled in the area. Um, this was a large farming area where tobacco in particular was king. During this time period, farmers were a significant part of the US workforce comprising up to 27%. However, during this era of industrial and social advancements, there were stark contrasts between city living and country living things moved a bit slower in farm country. Most farms still use kerosene lanterns and lamps with no electricity yet being introduced. Few farms had indoor plumbing, most sticking with the standard outhouse and chamber pots for bad weather days. And while city folk were beginning to use refrigerators, farm folk kept their food cold in an ice box filled with cut ice from frozen lakes in the winter time and stored in sawdust very much if you have kids uh seen out of frozen <laughs> and I saw like, um and this or is if you don't have kids and you just sing along to the soundtrack yeah, anyways right? um, <laughs> i was thinking that <laughs> so there is an actual fun fact here that one block of ice could last nearly all summer. Really? What kind of That's coolers do they have? Surprise. Oh, yeah. Were Yetis invented all back then? I don't know. Apparently it's <laughs> the miracle of sawdust, I guess. I don't know. Oh. Um, so another advancement not widely enjoyed in the country was motorized vehicles. During the decade when gasoline-powered vehicles were transforming the lives of Wisconsin farmers, a farmer was more likely to invest in a tractor than a car or a truck. But for those who could afford it, a car meant mobility, the ability to easily go to a neighboring town or even one of the big cities to see new places, meet new people, maybe even go to a dance or out to the movies. 
The 1920s were also an era of major social change across the country, particularly for young adults and women. While premarital sex was nothing new, even in the 1920s, it was something people didn't talk about. But that changed during the 1920s when sex exploded onto the scene, partly due to prohibition, as well as women obtaining the right to vote. Was that why it was called the Roaring Twenties? I think so, because I think there's a lot more kind of illegal activity with like alcohol because it was banned. So naturally, everybody mm-hmm. wanted to do it. And then two, you know, you know, us women were going crazy because all of a sudden we had the right to vote and let the power go to our head. That's, you know, paraphrasing. But anyway, um, the traditional notions of proper behavior were challenged. Young people threw raucous parties, they drank illegal liquor, and they danced new sexually suggestive moves at jazz clubs. This is when the flapper was born. Oh, I was going to say, this is starting to sound like college. (laughs) What? (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Come on, Kayla. Women weren't allowed to go to college at that time. I'm just kidding. I don't know that for a fact. Don't quote me on that. Um, However, this is yet another part of societal change that was slow to touch the farm country, with the exception of those who had transportation and therefore access to experience these new and exciting times. One farm family that was very typical of the farming community in this area and era was the Olsen family. Christian Batolf Olsen was born in Norway and immigrated to the United States in 1885 when he was 18 years old. He went on to marry another fellow Norwegian immigrant, Dinah Sandwick in October of 1892. And then the two of them um, would go on to have 10 children, starting with their eldest daughter, Minnie, who was born that same year, 1892, in December. So just two months later. So again, premarital sex was nothing new. And being in the family way prior to marriage was not an uncommon occurrence at that time. There were certain expectations of what would be the outcome if that were to occur. So after Minnie came, um, they had more children, nine children. So Adolf was born in 1894, Bernard in 1896, Emma in 1898. uh, And then their first son, Arthur, was born in 1901. But sadly, he was the only one of their 10 children that didn't make it to adulthood. So he actually passed away after just six weeks. And so he was followed by their second son, Arthur J, who was born in 1902. So it was actually a common practice during that time that if you lost a child as a newborn to name another child after them or in the same same name. That actually did happen in um, my family as well. I had, I think it was great, great grandpa August had two sons named August. Yeah. Yeah. Never heard of that. Um, yeah. Um, so then Clara was born in 1904, and then Alice in 1907, Cornelia in 1910, and Inga in 1913. And if you do the math, that is 21 years from the first child to the second or last child. 
It's a long But time. I suppose when there's 10. Yeah, but can you imagine getting pregnant and having kids for 21 years? No. Hell no. <laughs> so of all the children, it is said that Clara was her father's favorite. And it is her that our story is centered around. Uh-oh, I don't know if I like this, that she was the father's favorite. It's like, actually a good thing. But well. Okay. Okay. You'll see. <laughs> so on the, on the night of September 9th, 1926, Chris Olson was restless. And so I, I'm calling him Chris. Actually, how he was written in. Um, this book, there are some sites that I found online that actually would shorten his name to, well, I want to say Christ, but I think it would have been Christ. Maybe, yeah, because his name was Christian. So um, I think he may have have gone by Christ, but in, in this book, it cites it as Chris. So that's how I will refer to him. So on the night of September 9th, Chris Olson was restless. He recalled not going to bed until just before midnight. A few minutes after he went to bed, he heard Clara head out of the family home. She must have been waiting for him to retire before sneaking out. But at 21, she was an adult. So what could he do? He saw a car waiting for her, but didn't see who it was that was driving. He assumed that she must be meeting up with her sweetheart, as she often had before, and dozed off, believing that his Clara would make it home safely. Perhaps some unconscious fear came forth, as in his sleep he dreamed of walking down the hall past Clara's room and looking in to see her bed empty. He awoke frightened and asked his wife Dinah to check on Clara. Her bed was in fact empty. She had not returned safely. She had not returned at all. Further examination of her room revealed a note that she had left behind for her family. This is where we pause while I find it. So the note that she left was, dear folks, I know you all will be surprised to find me gone as I am leaving this evening. I will have to go tonight. Please do not worry about me as I will not be gone very long. If anyone asks about me, tell them I have gone to the cross. Again, I must tell you, do not worry about me as I am taken good care of and will be back soon. Don't take it too seriously as it will mean nothing. Only a little surprise. I will be back soon from my trip. Huh. While the note So she had a mission. Yes. And as we progress through the story, we'll understand exactly what that mission was and why she wrote what she wrote. Um, but while the note was intended to assuage the concern and fear of her family, Chris felt that something was wrong. So I think he just had this innate sense um he actually don't have all the details but as like through the course of this case he actually did have some might argue kind of supernatural almost premonition sort of moments so I think maybe just having such a close bond with Clara um he just had a connection that 
was almost otherworldly, it seems. And what came to mind for me, I know they aren't twins or, but kind of like, I think I've heard that before about twins, that kind of connection. Yeah. And they even say like mothers can always know about their kids as well. Like they just always have this feeling. Um, it's hard to say, but he kind of seems to have that connection with Clara. So upon discovery of her empty bed and the note left behind, Chris woke his sons Adolf and Bernard and informed them that their sister was missing. Recalling the, the car he saw in the middle of the night shortly after going to bed, the three of them headed toward the road to investigate. There, they found tire tracks heading north towards the home of the young man they knew to be Clara's sweetheart. Bernard went to the home of Clara's sweetheart, Erdman Olsen, no relation. So they had the same last name, not related. Just Erdman? No, last name Olsen. No, but, but his yeah, first name is Erdman? Yes. Adolf and Erdman, and we got some interesting names. It's the 20s. I mean, it was the 20s. Um, so Erdman Olsen and his family um, was where they were headed to investigate, seeing that the tire tracks were headed in that direction. And the home um, was actually belonged to Erdman's father, Albert Olson. As he made the track, he noted that the tire tracks found at the family farm said matched those that had turned into the drive at Albert Olson. So there was a distinctive tread as one of the four tires had like the patch on it. So he could tell that it was the same tire tracks that led from their home into like towards the um, Albert Olson's home and into the drive. Ooh, this is like good detective work for the 20s. Yeah. <laughs> um, so while he couldn't identify the exact vehicle they belonged to, it would appear that the vehicle that had picked up his sister had been driven to this location. When he arrived, he asked to see Erdman and inquired about his sister, Clara. Erdman claimed not to know where Clara was, which angered Bernard as he was quite sure that Erdman was the one to pick Clara up the night before. Um, he was angry enough that this disagreement between the two of them turned into a shouting match, um, which brought Erdman's mother, Anna, into the situation. So she actually offered um, and ended up touring Bernard through the family home so that she could prove to him that she was not there. And then Did Erdman have any siblings? Yes, um, but, and I actually don't mention it, so I'll, I'll bring it up here. He did have a younger brother who was seven years younger than him. So at this time, um, the brother was only 11. Oh, too young to drive. Yeah, so. Bernard returned home to relay what he had been told by Erdman, but the Olsen family didn't believe it. They knew that the only reason Clara would leave the house in the middle of the night was to meet with her boyfriend. And while he would claim that it must have been somebody else, there was no one else. Like she would not have left to see anyone else. Like he was the only one that she would have left for. And they knew that. A few days later brought Clara's 22nd birthday, but she still had not returned or contacted her family. So they're on you through. 
Yeah, that would bother me. At that mm -hmm. point, it would really bother me, like to not hear anything at all, even if she's still gone, but to not mm -hmm. be able to get any kind of communication as to where yeah. she is on her birthday. Yeah, and granted, communication was more difficult during that mm -hmm. time period, but they they knew in their heart that she would have contacted them in some way if she could have. Her sweetheart, Erdman, who had been home to help with the family tobacco harvest, had returned to college in Galesville, which was about two hours away. Um, so he wasn't always located in that area. After two weeks with no sign of Clara, Chris Olson and his wife could wait no longer. They went to visit Erdman's parents, Albert and Anna. It was Anna Olson who broke the news to Chris and Dinah that Clara was away due to a pregnancy, that she would return in a few months with a child and no man. And no man. And no man. Yeah. Because Anna believed, as her son had said, that the child wasn't his, that it must have been another boy and not her Erdman. Why wouldn't the even though he helped her get away? And why wouldn't the mom say something like, come on, you're keeping this secret from the parents of this girl and making them panic? Yeah, I don't I don't know. There there's there's some class differences between it because his family was better off. And so I think there's a certain air of like we're better than you, like your daughter went and got herself in trouble and now she's trying to trap my son into it kind of thing um but i mean whenever it's not always true but you kind of gotta i feel like and we'll talk a little bit about erdman as well but i feel like um his behavior and his attitude as an individual certainly reflects on his parentage and how he was raised as well. So I think some of that is also reflected in his behavior of his parents. Um, and based on her note, she thought he was going to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get more into it here as well. So his parents, or at least his mom, um, who knows what his dad believed, but his mom believed that, believed what he said, that it wasn't his, um, that he was just being a good friend in trying to get her away um, so that she would be able to have this child. So despite this shocking news, Chris couldn't shake that something was wrong. If it were true what Anna Olson said, surely Clara would have contacted the family by now. And while the rumors spread and most believed what Anna had told them, Chris vowed he would find his daughter. So he, you know, not to say that he didn't care, but he was more concerned about her safety. Like if that's really truly what's going on, just prove to me that she's okay. So just two days after seeing Albert and Anna Olson, um, probably because it just really didn't give him the answers that he was looking for, Chris asked a couple of acquaintances to drive him to Gale College so that he could see Erdman himself. Chris confronted Erdman, saying he could prove that he was the one to meet Clara that night. And Erdman was rattled when Chris brought up the letter that Erdman had written to Clara just before Clara disappeared. Oh. 
So Chris hadn't seen the letter, but Alice, Clara's younger sister, ever nosy of her sister's affairs, had seen it. She saw just enough that Chris was able to use that knowledge to get to Erdman and make him believe that he had read that letter and knew what its contents included. Mm. So with that, Erdman admitted that he had met Clara that night. But this time, he said he drove her to Viroqua, where she Viroqua. was. Viroqua. 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 I, I'm probably probably thinking of like Minocqua. Uh, my uh, my dad dated a lady from Viroqua for a long time. Otherwise, I never would have known that either. <laughs> Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, that's okay. It's good to make sure I'm pronouncing things correctly. <laughs> So he admitted that he had met her, but this time he kind of changed his story a bit. And he said that he had driven her to Viroqua where she was to take a bus to St. Paul, Minnesota. He said that she was well and that she would return when the baby was born. Clara was of age. So, you know, an adult, Chris had no power to bring her back. So he begged of Erdman to bring her back just so he could see, like be sure that she was alive and that she was safe. So she knew that Erdman had more, or he knew that Erdman had more sway over her and that he had no stance to force her to come back, but he just wanted to know that she was okay. Um, so he, you know, pleaded to Erdman, he, he knew truth. Um, so he pleaded to Erdman and said that he would help the two of them get married that there was plenty of room at their farm, that they could stay with them, um, and that he would even give give them a piece of his piece of their own land that they could get started on. He's just like he just wanted his daughter and to be safe. And if that's really what was going on, it was like, okay, fine, like whatever, I'll help you guys get started in life and be be okay and be able to have a family. Um, and so confronted with this Erdman didn't dare deny his paternity to Clara's father but he said that he needed a little time to bring her back um, kind of avoiding the topic if you will so Chris made it clear that if he was unable to bring her back in three days time he was going to get the sheriff after him like he was not letting it go well, yeah, because it didn't take him three days to get her somewhere. Right, right. So following Chris's visit, Erdman wrote two letters, one to his parents and one to Chris Olson. Oh, boy. I'm not going to read them until the very end. Oh, boy. After mailing the letters, Erdman boxed up some of his belongings and sent them home to his parents. He then sought out the college president and notified him that he would be leaving the school. Yeah. I just have a feeling something is afoot. Case in hand, Erdman Olson left and was never seen again. Mm. Oh. Yikes. On September. Never seen again? Never seen again like ever oh huh hmm things that make you go hmm i thought this case was about clara 
But now we have a third man. It is. We might have two people. Okay. On September 28th, 1926, after Erdman's disappearance, Chris Olson hired two detectives to find Clara. So his best lead has now vanished. So he's got to go back to square one. Captain John T. Sullivan was a retired Milwaukee chief of detectives, later to become the Kenosha chief of police. And William Casman was a private detective and retired police detective out of Madison, Wisconsin. For two months, they would search records for all medical facilities in the nearby area looking for any sign of Clara, but none showed up. On November 25th, 1926, Detective Sullivan and Caswin, along with Chris Olson, met with Sheriff Harry Harry W. Sherwood and Justice of the Peace C.H. Speck to lay forth the evidence against Erdman Olson. Their circumstantial evidence centered on six main facts. One, the letter Erdman wrote to his parents and Caswin had the letter, so he had a copy of that letter. Two, the letter Erdman wrote to Chris Olson. Three, tire tracks found by Bernard on the morning of September 10th. Four, Erdman changing his story. Five, no hospital reports of Clara's whereabouts. And six, reports of Erdman's character from his classmates. He killed her. He did it. I'm calling it. And then he's not missing. He's running. And he's running. Yeah, he's hiding. Yeah. He gone. After presenting the case, Chris Olson filed a murder complaint against Erdman Olson, and a warrant was issued for his arrest. So strong and compelling was the case that this was unprecedented, for there was no body, no concrete evidence, no eyewitnesses, and no murder weapon. With the warrant came a reward and a call to action to search for Clara's body. So one thing here is Chris had and his sons had tried to get support from the community in the area to do a search for Clara in the past um, prior to this. But it's such a vast area and it's like hilly and it can be like there's just so much area to cover there's like swampy areas boggy areas they're just like how are we even possibly going to find a body if that's even where she is a lot of them believe the rumors spread by Anna Olson about her just being off to have a baby somewhere you know in shame well I mean maybe that was her plan right they just thought like well she she's she's just off having a baby she'll be back like Mm -hmm. half of them probably didn't even believe that something had actually happened to her and then even if something did they're like how are we going to find her so this actually by having the warrant for his arrest really added a lot of weight to what he was trying to do and with having that financial reward then now all of a sudden you got people willing to go and do the search so he speaks yeah 
Adolf and Bernard went to the American Legion and Gaze Mills calling for volunteers, and some 200 men turned out for the search organized for December 1st of 1926. With snow falling and the threat of a blizzard, the search dwindled the first day but picked up on the second. The volunteers increased in numbers up to a thousand men and boys from the area. Yeah. Around that is a big search. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you also have to figure too. This is primarily all Norwegian immigrants. They're a fairly tight knit community, and while they may not have been kind of on board with it, I think initially now, now that they're kind of at that same point of okay, let's go find her. They're calling to arms if you will around 10 30 in the morning on december 2nd 1926 a group of volunteers led by woodsman and farmer charles bone or bone um, came upon the crest of a hill in the area known as battle ridge he noted that the ground looked unnatural in fact it was clear that the ground had been recently turned investigating further bone poked a stick into the disturbed area and soon exposed a woman's heel enclosed in a rubber shoe Eek. lying face down buried in a shallow grave at battle ridge not far from the home of albert and anna olsen on land owned by erdman olsen's <gasps> uncle Eesh. was clara olsen Damn. Yeah. While awaiting the proper notification of authorities and the arrival of the coroner, no one disturbed the unmarked grave. They somberly waited and pondered the tragic fate of this poor girl. They noted that it took time to dig a grave like that, cutting through roots with an axe, but it must oh, have been prepared wow. in advance. Yeah, he's not just using a shovel, like he's fully prepared out there. Yeah. Yeah. So wow. they they believe that that grave, the nature of it, that it had to have been dug ahead of time. Premeditated mm. murder. Yeah, that makes it premeditated for oh, sure. Premeditation. Murder. And do we think that the pregnancy was the truth and that maybe he killed her when he found out she was pregnant? Or do we think that was all a total lie? My guess is yes, but Eric knows the facts. I'm going to tell the story. Oh. <laughs> yeah, on. Kayla, just wait. She'll tell us. Gee. <laughs> so Clara had suffered a massive blow or blows to the back of her head, resulting in an almost instant death. The coroner would state that it was more than likely multiple blows that were sustained due to the unlikelihood that a single hit would cause the amount of damage that occurred. It is most likely that she was surprised with a hit from behind. What the actual weapon was is unknown, but it was speculated to be either a steel pipe or a hammer, something mm -hmm. substantial. For some reason... I'm always really grossed out when people use a hammer to kill somebody. It just, I don't know why. I you can imagine I what it's doing to the back of somebody's head. Yeah. Oh, yeah it's, right. Yeah, like, I agree. Right. What it does to a nail in wood. And yeah. Thinking about that. Ugh, terrible. 
The attack left a triangular section of the left rear side of Clara's skull caved in, suggesting that her assailant was left-handed. Erdman. Let me guess. Erdman Erdman was left-handed. Well, I don't know if he was completely left-handed, but he was a left-handed pool player. He was ambidextrous? Possibly, but it at least shows that he either was ambidextrous or left-handed. Mm-hmm. Um, sadly, Clara wasn't the only victim that night, as it was confirmed that she had, in fact, been six months pregnant, pregnant at the time. Oh, six months. Wow. Clara's unborn child, determined to be a girl through the autopsy, was taken from this world before ever having a chance to enter it. So that you know her being that far along it does make sense that she said she wasn't going to be gone very long so you know she was in the final trimester and going away to have the baby so yeah he probably said he would help and obviously she was going to come back with a baby and a husband well no exactly what he said because i will read that letter Oh, that's right. You're so just so full of all this information on this one, and we just keep asking. All these twists. Look at us go. Surprises. All these twists and turns. Yes. So let's rewind a little bit and go back to the true start of this story when boy meets girl. Clara Olson and Erdman Olson, both with the Olson surname, but of no familial relation, met in June of 1925 at the Lutheran Church Social. The church social was hosted by Clara's family's church, the Utica Lutheran Church. Erdman Olson and his family attended a different church in the area, but the social that day was held at the farm of his maternal uncle, Peter Severson. Clara Olson, who was said to have been admired by many of the boys in the area, was immediately smitten with young Erdman. He was different than the other boys. Her sister Alice commented that Erdman was quite a smart fellow to hear talk and that she could tell Clara believed every word he said. Armor. She observed that her sister was very much taken with the young man. She would fuss with her clothes, making new clothes and getting new things to wear like perfume for whenever he came to visit. As after that initial meeting, Clara and Erdman would see each other whenever he was home from college. So this is a full like year and a half before she was actually killed that, or well, not quite a year and a half, a year and three months before she was actually killed. So they were seeing each other for quite a a while. Um, It would seem that Erdman was smitten with Clara as well, at least to a certain degree. When the two young, soon-to-be lovers met, Clara was 20 years old and Erdman was just 17. But he had no- Yeah, so she was an older uh, Booger. Booger like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, did that just come out of my mouth? but he had no qualms about dating an older woman and in fact his circumstances made him far more knowledgeable and experienced than naive clara clara olson was described as a sweet innocent girl her father's favorite erdman was her first love 
Despite the admiration of other boys, she never had a steady beau. Clara was a dutiful daughter who kept close to home and helped with the chores. Milking cows, baking, washing and ironing the clothes, and helping the family with the tobacco crop. When not working at home, she was hired out to help her neighbors as a domestic. She would take care of household chores, and she helped to take care of children when the mothers were under the weather. Clara saw Erdman whenever he was home from college, as his family was wealthy enough to send him. When he was away at school, they would write letters back and forth. Clara's younger sister, Alice, observed that Clara treasured her letters from Erdman, often reading them over and over again, wistfully looking out towards the drive where Erdman would wait for her when he came to pick her up. And while Clara was sweet, innocent, and loyal, Erdman was a different sort altogether. But opposites attract, or so they say. Or so they say. Erdman was a snappy, dressed college boy with an air of sophistication. His family background was similar to Clara's, coming from a family of Norwegian immigrants, with his grandfather immigrating prior to the Civil War. While Clara's family was more common of the families in the area, Erdman's family was one of the wealthier families in the area. His parents, Albert and Anna, were in, also into farming, raising tobacco on 280 acres, which was a much greater acreage than other farms in the area. They were well enough off to afford not only one vehicle, but two vehicles, allowing Erdman a car of his own. And while he didn't venture much outside of Wisconsin, his ability to travel to nearby towns and larger cities made him well-traveled and worldly within that community. They were also able to send him to college, something only afforded to families of sufficient wealth during that time. Erdman began attending Gale College, run by the Norwegian Evangelical Lutheran Church, when he was 16 years old. And it's not because Holy he was crap. It's not because he was like smart. It's just that they started college earlier during that time period. Okay. So wow, dang. Those who attended the college were expected to become ministers, lawyers, and leaders in their community. So by all accounts, his family's fortune afforded him a bright future. Or Until he became a murderer. Yes. Sometimes when you are given things so easily, you take them for granted. So it would seem with Erdman. Erdman was known for his fast living and illegal booze. Again, prohibition. In the midst of prohibition, he was involved in the illegal transport of alcohol and was known for carrying a flask of moonshine of his own. At he 17. Yeah. <laughs> he frequented dances and parties. The girls in central Crawford County knew Erdman and he knew them all. He was a bit of a troublemaker at school, getting into fights. He'd actually been kicked out at one point, but was able to return on probation. Again, money will buy all sorts of things. He also kept a 22 caliber revolver in his room and was known to fire it into the wall at times. What the fuck? 
casual Moral behavior. <laughs> yep. Totally casual. Nothing, nothing to worry about there. Drinking yep. moonshine and shooting <laughs> his gun into the wall. Really strong moonshine. I wonder if he'll get that security deposit back. <laughs> it's his parents' house. So parents, yeah. history. <laughs> I was thinking no, that was college. Oh, that was a college. <laughs> um, Erdman also seemed to think that his family's wealth made him better than those of lesser fortunes, Clara included. While Clara was clearly smitten with Erdman and her family knew of him, he never once set foot inside her home. He wow. would wait for her in his car at the end of her drive. So you just park in front of her drive and wait for her to come out and hop in the car and off they would go. That was a big no at my house. Mom would have said he got to come in and meet him. Yeah. And I think um, it, I mean, the book, it even says that Chris often beckoned him to come in, like welcoming him into the home. And he just ignored it and just went going. So, I mean, he clearly how to stick up his ass anyway um what a douche yeah seriously that's a good way to just that's a good way to put it yeah. i agree a user total chatsky uh, yeah so at college when he spoke of clara with his classmates he referred to her as his hick girlfriend oh, oh man. my god Damn, that ain't dick. cool douche yeah so i think part of what made this case really sad for me reading it and kind of angry even was just thinking about like just how i can picture her side of things and like how she just believed the best of him and like had this fantasy in her mind and he's just not worth it at all yeah it's just almost they never are I mean, let's be honest. (laughs) I know, but it it just makes it like that much. I know, seriously. She was so naive. Yeah. She's bad. She just, she believed in him. Right. He was playing her. Yeah. A naive cougar. Right. (laughs) There is something to be said about bad boys. And sadly, Clara was no different in her attraction to Erdman. Hindsight is 2020 if you're fortunate enough to be able to look back and perhaps if Clara had been afforded that opportunity, she would have seen that to Erdman, she was just another conquest. Man. One can only speculate and many did how poor Clara ended up in the predicament that she did. By all accounts, Clara was in love with Erdman, so why wouldn't she give herself to him completely? She likely also had hopes, however false they may have been, that the two would one day marry and have a family of their own. Not to mention that being a good church-going girl does not negate Mother Nature or those pesky hormones, so she's just human after all, I mean... Mm -hmm. We also don't know Erdman's role in the situation, aside from the obvious. Did Erdman love her in his own way? Did he tell her he loved no. her? Did he promise her marriage someday? He was a smooth talker. You never know mm-hmm. what tale he spun. Yeah, don't tell your parents I'll take care of you. We'll come back married. 
Mm-hmm. Did he make her feel like a simple farm girl compared to the more progressive worldly girls he knew at college? And Clara knew that Erdman saw other girls. Perhaps she felt she had to give herself to him in order to keep his affections. Jeez. That never works, ladies. Never Seriously. works. <sighs> Any number of possibilities abound, and the only two people who are able to speak to the true nature of their relationship are long since gone. However, it is fair to say that the relationship was not simply one-sided, as Erdman reportedly wrote to Clara nearly every day. They were young and unprepared hmm. consequences of their actions. Whatever the circumstances, their relationship led to an unplanned pregnancy. And again, while not uncommon, it also wasn't looked upon as acceptable either. There were certain expectations by society in order for it to be okay. If those expectations were not met, a definite stigma surrounded the affair. And while the man often escaped the responsibility, blame, shame, and humiliation, the woman was not so lucky. I hate that. And that's still today. Like the women are usually like the slut or whatever, but. That's true. But like, I'm going to talk about some of this. It was like, I'm like so glad this is not the 1920s. I can't even tell you. All right. Oh, sure. It was probably even a hundred times worse oh, back then. It's is bad. So the term used in the situation was illegitimate. And with it came a lot of baggage. Mm-hmm. Illegitimate children were sometimes called deviant if people were being polite. Bastards. The term bastard was freely used. It was even widely believed that illegitimate children or children born out of wedlock presented significant social and public health problems. Oh my God. Illegitimacy was believed to be a factor in mental health problems. Feeble-minded children (laughs) were more likely to be born to unwed mothers. (laughs) The baby is going to develop differently because the mom's not married. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's just wrong on so many levels. But here's the reason why they thought that. Because illegitimate pregnancies were byproducts of retardation, insanity, and epilepsy. Wait, what? Doesn't that, that make sense? Yeah. That women. Oh, that's what they. Yeah. That, that women who get pregnant out of wedlock, because it's certainly not the men, I'm sure, that they're putting. Wait, it's off. not that the man left them. Yeah. So women <laughs> right. who get pregnant out of wedlock must be retarded, insane, or have epilepsy wow i guess yes so illegitimate pregnancies were byproducts of retardation insanity and epilepsy social workers of the time were encouraged to consider pregnancies outside of marriage as a sign of neuroses girls and women who had sex before or outside of marriage got pregnant on purpose whether they knew it or not why is it only the girls that are choosing to have sex yeah. outside of marriage? Are they not realizing that the men are doing it too? Like boys will be boys. Well, it takes two. Boys will be boys. They're just being men. Anyway, hopefully everybody could tell there was sarcasm in that statement. <laughs> yes, obviously. 
Um, so that process certainly aligned with Albert and Anna Olson's way of thinking once they learned the pregnancy, insisting that Clara was trying to trap their Erdman into marriage. Unmarried girls and women were sent away to a special hospital to have their children, as if society were ashamed of them. And they were. And they were, yeah. The mother was not allowed to see the baby, let alone hold them. In most cases, the child was put up for adoption. The only hope for a young woman to escape the stigma was to convince the man to do the right thing and marry her. So Clara must have thought that that is what was going to happen. Clara knew that marrying Erdman was her only hope. So she shared her news with him and begged of him to marry her, to do the right thing. And not surprisingly, Erdman didn't answer. Well, before he wrote to her nearly every day, he was now silent. By mid-August, at more than halfway through her pregnancy, Clara knew she wouldn't be able to hide it much longer. And with no response from Erdman, she made a desperate plea to Erdman's parents. The parents went and picked her up. I wonder if the parents were in on it. The parents went and picked her up. So here is what she wrote to them. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Albert Olson, I know you folks will be surprised to hear from me and what I have to say. Understand I am a good friend to your Erdman and I'm sorry to say that we are in a pinch and have to get married. If God is willing and you folks are willing to help us. I wrote Erdman a letter some time ago to come down and marry me because I do not want to get him in trouble and I don't want my parents to know and I hope you folks will help us before my folks find out what has come. Please be good to Erdman. I know he never meant to leave me. It is only four and one half months now until I will be expecting. So I hope Erdman and I can get married this month and make our lives worthwhile. I am closing with love and God's blessing. And I hope to hear from you and see Erdman soon. What a sweet woman. Yeah. I mean, that is so impressive. So that. misled trusting though. Yeah. True. Yeah. yeah she, should true, but... to, she should have talked to her parents. Yeah. I think it sounds like they would have supported her. Yeah. That's so yeah. So after Clara contacted Albert and Anna Olson, they confronted their son who denied that the child was his. Blind to his lies, they believed him. Now, I think the mom, maybe more so than the dad, the dad probably kind of knew what was up. Yeah. Um, Clara must be trying to pass off another's child, uh, another's child as Erdman's in order to trap him into marriage and tap into the family's wealth, obviously. Even though his parents were pacified, Erdman was forced to face the reality that Clara's pregnancy could not be hidden much longer. And while his parents may have believed his story, there were others, like Clara's family, that would guess the truth. He could no longer ignore Clara or her pregnancy. He had to act. After devising a plan, Erdman finally broke his silence and wrote Clara a letter. So this is dated September 6th, 1926. So three days before she met her fate. 
Dear friend, I hope you think. Dear friend. Friend, yeah. Oh, my God. Friend with benefits. Right. <laughs> it wasn't a thing back then. I don't like that's already rude. Yeah. Oh, right. I suppose you think me awfully neglectful, but I haven't. I have been to the hospital for a while, had a couple of operations. I have decided the time for us is right to show action. Of course, we'll have to disappear, you know, so I thought we could get the ceremony over with and then come back in a week or so and let them know if they don't know. You'll have to coax your brother to take you down to Seneca to the dance September 9th, and I will get you there. Then we, we then go to Hendra, Minnesota, which is the same as Winona. Do not take any more clothes than what you wear as taking more will cause suspicion and try to get as much cash as possible as that is necessary if we wish to make a pleasant trip out of it. I have some myself, of course. I will be at Seneca between 9 and 10 o'clock, and when you see me, leave the hall alone and walk up the street until I find you. And remember that everything is on the QT or quiet. Also write a note and leave someplace where it can be found in a day or so and say that you are going away for a while, but not to worry as you'll be back someday, but don't mention why you were going or nor, nor mention my name. If you can't come to the dance, sneak out of the house about 1230 and come towards the road. If I am not there, keep on going until I meet you. Don't let anyone see you. Please destroy this letter and all my other letters and act hard towards me to your folks. Do as I have asked you to do and everything will be okay. If you don't, your chance might be shot and I might make a scarce hubby. So if you wish to avoid the disgrace, do as I say and keep mum. I hate this guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the 17-year-old little shit. He's pretty smart with this conniving plan. This is insane. Yeah. I don't know if I'd say it was smart. I read yeah. well, but I'm smart. Like, devious. Yeah. yeah. Very devious. Yeah. It's really thought through. Yeah. Even like don't don't take extra clothes. Well, then that's one less thing he has to get rid of. Yeah. Right. Right. No, like it out. See you on the ninth as ever as usual p.s remember do as i say and destroy all letters so he mentioned twice to burn all the letters yeah because he oh, knew yeah. that was he, he knew already get him out of the picture and not mm -hmm. a yeah oh he yeah. knew what he was doing it's pretty that was his plan all along so dang Again, this was the sixth and so the ninth, which he even said in his letter, was when they met and when she unfortunately met her fate. So this letter would eventually be found stashed in the bodice of Clara's dress. Good thing she didn't listen to what he has to say. Yeah. So yeah. ever loyal, yeah. ever loyal, Clara burned all of Erdman's letters per his instruction, though she could not bear to part with this one. This letter, from her perspective, was the answer to her prayers, or so she thought. And so she stashed it in her bodice, where it would be discovered, along with Clara's lifeless body in a shallow grave. If she hadn't been blinded by love and desperation when she read this letter, 
perhaps she never would have left to meet him. Right. Mm -hmm. Gosh, I think about us like knowing all these like crime, you know, being crime junkies and whatnot. And like reading a letter like that, I'd be like, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure he's going to murder me. (laughs) But back then it's it's like, I'm so in love. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty like... Yeah, it there's so many red flags in that letter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um so her sister Alice was there when she got the letter and she saw how anxious Clara was to receive it. How it prompted a flurry of activity as Clara began to prepare for what Alice didn't know. But she knew something was up with her big sister, referred to by her father as the Snoopy one, um which I say naturally curious and suspicious. I'm okay with being Snoopy. (laughs) Alice did her best to look over her sister's shoulder to see the contents of the letter. She would end up seeing just enough for her father to rattle Erdman when he confronted him at Gale College, but not enough to save Clara. After Mm. receiving the letter, Clara began to prepare for her new life. Following Erdman's instructions, she burned his letters rereading them with a smile on her face before throwing them into the flames. She hitched a ride into town with her dad and bought new dresses and clothes while he ran his own errands. Alice even observed her fiddling with the blinds and a lamp as she was setting up a signal to signal her lover at the appointed time for their rendezvous. They didn't have electricity. While Clara daydreamed of her future as a wife and mother, making preparations for upcoming wedding and honeymoon trip, Erdman made preparations of his own. Digging a hole. Yeah. Yeah. He had a grave to dig and an alibi to establish. That night, he was sure to make an appearance at a local dance. One woman he danced with that night noted that he seemed frazzled and could not keep step. Certainly. This is at school, right? Uh, no, this the, is, um, he was back, back at home. Oh, this, so he, okay. Yeah, he was okay. back in, um, he was trying to, I knew he was back. Yeah. Yeah. I knew yeah. he was back. I was wondering if he was trying to put himself away. Oh, not that school. far away. No, okay. he, he basically went to a local public place to make it known that he was, you know, make sure he was seen by people. So, Certainly, his mind was preoccupied with the unholy plans he intended to carry out. Based on his attendance at the dance and when his parents noted his arrival home, they would argue that there was no way he could possibly have carried out the deed in so short a time. He had planned for that, after all. Mm -hmm. Just after midnight, the end of September 9th and the start of September 10th, Clara Olson left her family home and hopped into the car of Erdman Olson. Erdman drove in the direction of his own family farm, turning off on a logging road along the way. He made his way to Battle Ridge and the pre-dug grave. He stopped the car. I'm sure he had some excuse, though with stars in her eyes, Clara probably didn't even think to question him. With her back turned, Erdman struck her repeatedly from behind, causing massive head trauma and ultimately her death. After the deed was done, he placed Clara face down in the grave and covered her up with soil. 
perhaps her positioning was because he couldn't bring himself to look her in the face. Yeah. <sighs> they say that with um, murderers, like if you watch the first 48 or something like that, when somebody is found killed or dead and if their face or body is covered they usually say it's somebody that knew them because yeah. they don't exactly yeah i want to look at him erdman returned home where his parents were up to start the day farming communities to get up early mm -hmm. they would later report his behavior as perfectly normal Erdman turned into tuned into the radio and ate a sandwich while perusing the mail order catalogs. That's disgusting. Yeah. He then retired to bed. He thought he had gotten away with murder, and quite frankly, he did. But the love of a father for his daughter would drive Erdman, coward that he was, to give up his privileged life. By October, Erdman Olson had disappeared and he was never found. Oh. I mentioned before that when Erdman disappeared, he wrote two oh, he letters. He led a letter. Yeah. One to Chris Olson and one to his parents. So I'll read the one that he wrote to Chris first. Um, come on erica this is very suspenseful. <laughs> okay so all right so to chris olson he wrote i'll be a gale no longer after tonight i am going to make myself scarce enough so you cannot find me or clara from now on as far as i am concerned just where she is is my business at the present and after the big bunch of lip I got from you, I am not caring a great deal either. There big are things... bunch of lip I got yeah. from you. Wow. There are things you'd better not try, and that is to drag my family into this matter, as they are entirely <laughs> ignorant of those things. And if you don't want publicity, don't shout too loud, because it will not sound so awfully good to hear that your daughter run away in the night. I believe she is all right in health and such, but where she is, I can't say. I am leaving because I don't like the idea of the sheriff coming up here. If I couldn't find her, I'll be back when she comes back. Huh. Which is never. never. Yeah. Wow. So the other letter that he wrote was to his parents. Oh my gosh. Thank you for all your help. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Mom and dad, sorry, I'm a murderer. So, Mom and dad, send money. P.S. I'm a murderer. Right. So here's what he wrote. I suppose you heard a lot of things already. I know that I did. I had some visitors yesterday and they were real nice about some things. They seem to think that they have me where I can't wiggle my toes, which is where they are very much mistaken. Very much so. He, the old man, claims that he has absolute proof that I know where she is, and I haven't the least idea of her location, but I cooked up a story that she was in St. Paul and that I would have to have some time to get her back here. I am leaving tonight for some place where no one knows. I shall not even tell you folks, though. God knows how I feel. I have thought of finishing everything, but life is too sweet and hard to part with. 
but I say this, that I shall rather take death than captivity. Oh, I, but I can murder my yeah, life is too my child. But yeah, that yeah. that's part of the reason why I'm reading this last because it's just like, oh my god, what a freaking asshat! Like, what a piece, <laughs> what a literal piece of shit to say. Like, yeah, it's yeah, too sweet to part with. After anyway, um, I am taking the most necessary articles of clothing in a suitcase and I'm sending back the rest. This may seem like mockery, but what else could I do with them? Give Orvid, um, so his younger brother, everything that he can use of my stuff. He is only one brother in a thousand and it brings tears to think of what he has before him in the future. Poor little boy. Sometime I may write to you, but can't say that you will ever see me again unless it may be in a coffin. Perhaps you may never want to see me again. I would not blame you if you don't. I have no money, but got some checks that will do me for traveling expenses until I get some work. I will never stay long in one place, for that would be dangerous. Mother, I suppose that your health will suffer tremendously from this, and it might wreck father, but don't let it do that. Live for Orvid. He will repay you many times for what you sacrifice for him. No child has ever had truer metal in, in it than he has. Forget me and live for Orvid. Send him to school and he will make you proud. These people cannot prove anything definite, although they will try. Do not let them try to pull anything over on you folks. Please try to bear this with bravery and forget me as I am not worthy of your memory. Shut me out from your thoughts entirely as though I never existed. Goodbye and God bless you all. You have not failed as parents, but I have failed as a son, Erdman. He's pretty he, much admitting his guilt right there. Like, yeah. What? <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm There's glad he... to hear that the parents weren't involved. Like, because yeah, that kind of I thought the mother was involved at the beginning. Solidify the whole rich money talks and let's buy our way out of this and don't. I um, think our family's name, whatever. So I think she honestly like believed him and thought that he just that she was just trying to like trap her son into marriage you know i honestly think that that's yeah, probably probably well he was clearly a manipulator yeah um, i mean he was yeah. manipulating the shit out of his girlfriend yeah so there is a ps um so ps no one will ever know me by that name anymore now it will be a different one i told everyone that i'm going to the doctor for an operation it is true that i will have to have another operation Larson or a Locan's guard will write you when I don't come back. Tell them what you please. It is immaterial to me. And I'm not really sure. I think that might be somebody at the college or something like that. But yeah, so. Wow. And that, those were those two letters were the first two points for the circumstantial case that they laid before um, the sheriff and the justice of the peace in order to get the warrant yeah but oh now gosh. he's missing and he was probably never found he wasn't he was yeah. never found. He wasn't yeah. found the only thing that would find him is dna if he had dna to. right yeah. yeah which a hundred years ago almost yeah yeah mm -hmm. they couldn't even wouldn't even be able to prove it probably right yeah so Clara Olson was laid to rest with her unborn daughter on December 7, 1926. Nearly the entire community turned out for the affair. At least 600 people came to attend. 
The church that could only fit 150 was crammed with 300 attendees, while another 300 stood out in the falling snow. Her tragic story had enraptured the nation and broke the heart of the entire community of Rising Sun, Wisconsin. Wow. What happened to his parents? I think they continued on. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that they certainly dealt with a lot of denial, um, even after he basically was more or less convicted by the community everybody believed that he was guilty i think they it took a long time for them to accept that um but yeah i feel bad for his little brother yeah yeah oh he's gonna have the reputation of being the brother of a murderer he was only 11 at the time Mm -hmm. it's a lot of burden to carry yeah so that was a, it's a very interesting tale. I, I definitely cut out a lot of the details. So this, this book that I got a lot of the information from murder in Wisconsin, there's a lot more details, both on the case. And there's also a lot of historical information in there. Cause you know, he peppered in a lot of facts about, you know, the community and the time and why, you know, certain like the the social that they met at and how it was such a community staple and how they did certain things by different activities and I mean it's certainly interesting um but I, I did find it somewhat difficult at times just to sort of follow the actual crime story through through it but it was definitely an interesting read um and like I said um it was very well known within Wisconsin, but it also definitely made headlines across the country because of the the nature of the topic. It was when they were, there was a lot of, like I said, there was a reward for Erdman. There are people on the look, there are tips that they'd see like, oh, I saw him here, saw him there. And they never ended up panning out, but. Um, well, killing a young pregnant woman, I think that, you know, that gets enough attention. Yeah. At age 17. I mean, 18. 18. he okay, was 18, well. she was 21. Yeah. Right. But, but I, yeah. yeah. Obviously, the lady, yeah. With, I mean, being pregnant is the real, uh, it's, yeah, it's really, there. but yeah, this kid was 17 or 18. I want, uh, like we always kind of talk about, I wonder how, if he turned into a serial killer, who knows? Yeah. Whatever. Now I'm, yeah, I'm going off. How the, long was he on the lamb? On the lamb, L-A-M. Until he died. Until, he, until he died. Yeah. Um, and you don't know if he died five years from then or lived in entire life. Yeah, that's true. There, yeah. Was, yeah. there was one, I think one of the things, the leads I think was that he had committed suicide in like a Chicago hotel or something like that. Um, but it didn't end up panning out. It wasn't him. Darn. Um, right yeah yeah so i don't know i mean at that time it was a lot easier to just disappear just start over yeah sure yeah you can track credit cards right didn't have any social media people weren't taking pictures you know snapping regular pictures and face recognition Mm -hmm. and even you know the cities there was so much more country and you know a lot of places that that it can go outside of a city. Yeah. Yeah. 
But that was a pretty heavy case that's definitely been weighing on my mind as I've been researching it. So how about a lighter story and our Wisco high note? Please. Sounds good to me. So this article is actually from um, the end of January. So it's a little old, but it's a cute one. So it says, mystery garbage man in Wisconsin neighborhood is revealed to be a 75-year-old man. So um, for weeks in the frigid Wisconsin weather, neighbors in Appleton were puzzling over a sudden mystery. On garbage days, they would trudge with their trash bins down their long driveways of snow and ice. And in the evenings, the bins appeared back at their garage. Melody Lutonegger, who lives in the neighborhood of Grand Chute, first asked her husband, but he replied, nope, I'm not bringing the garbage hands up. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, honey. (laughs) Not that good of a person. No. Then she thought it was the garbage company and decided to stake out the area to discover the identity of the good deed doer. (laughs) She's a, she's a true crime. uh, Right. (laughs) Devotee. Yeah. It was the day before Christmas Eve. She told WFRV local five spirit Tryon. And I got a little gift for them and stood there waiting and waiting (laughs) At 8.21 in the morning, she saw Dick Ponsloff, a 75-year-old senior who lives a few streets over, coming up the driveway with the Lutonegger's garbage cans. WFRV broadcasts a regular segment called Positively Wisconsin to showcase inspiring people. And Dick turned out to be quite inspiring. And said, when I retired, I got sick of doing nothing. So I started going around and picking up garbage cans, not just certain ones, everyone's, he told Local 5 News from nearby Green Bay. He li- he's lived in Wisconsin most of his life and always loved winter. I put this mask on because it makes your face nice and warm. That's the reason I'm wearing it. I don't normally wear one. He laughed again. <laughs> He said, just be nice to all people. He said, it's just what you got to do. Just think if you were at home and you needed someone for help. Lutonegger benefited from something more intangible than help. You know, the kindness that strangers give is unexplainable feeling. Oh, that is a nice little feel good. All I can think about is now I know what dad can do in his retirement. (laughs) Yeah, my dad too. Seriously, you know what? It's someone's trash bin. (laughs) It's something so small that clearly makes enough of an impact that this woman waits around to like figure out who did it. To not have to go out in the cold in the morning to get your trash can, like, I mean, that's a big. It it it's not a big deal, but. It's a nice, such a nice gesture that is just a a feel good. You could have just gotten like a ring doorbell and gotten the camera to capture it, but it was nice that she stayed out. I just like the idea that it's kind of has that old fashioned sense of community to it. Mm -hmm. And that was such a central part of the Clara Olson case to a certain extent. And just kind of is good to remember that not everyone is bad. And as he said, just be nice to all people. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be douchey like the guy in this story. Don't be <laughs> or, douchey. I mean, that, don't be douchey like the the murderer. <laughs> can can we just can we name the this 
episode, don't be douchey. <laughs> it's not going to be called the Clara Olson story. Was, it's going to be don't be douchey. I was going to say the heartbreaking t- story of Clara oh. Olson, but <laughs> and then and then Colin, Colin. Well, let's just say don't this. be douchey. Let's just say <laughs> that that is a good title, but I don't want to make this about Erdman. Right, true. that's true. Right, fair point. Yeah, highlight her, not him. Exactly. She was a very sweet um, young woman that certainly deserved to live. Yeah, didn't but, get enough of a chance. So, well, that um, was a good case. Yeah. I never heard of it. No, yeah, yeah I hadn't yeah. either. And it seems like such a big case. It's just, yeah, probably just too long ago that I haven't. Yeah, they do say though, and there was. Can- you can still see the indentation in Battle Ridge where her grave was. Eek. Well, I, for one, am amazed that they found her. Yeah, yeah, that's impressive. How he had chopped the roots and dug yeah. this. Like, yeah. He spent some time yeah. doing that. And somebody I just the, found the ground looked funny. You will, yeah. but you're, you're dealing with farmers. I mean, they know what the ground looks like when it's turned. Okay. Like they know. But I was going to say that I, for the letter, I thought it was going to be like, oh, mom and dad, like, I'm just, I got to go run away. Da, da. And I thought it was going to be like, P.S. Make sure her body isn't found at, at the at uncle so-and-so's farm or wherever it was. Yeah. Like, I thought that was going to be the end of the letter. Like, wait a second. What? His parents knew, but yeah <laughs> so but until next time eat drink and be wary for listening to Beer, Cheese, and Murder. We would like to also thank the references that make this podcast possible. A full list of references can be found on our website at beercheeseandmurderpodcast.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at beercheeseandmurderpod, where pictures from today's episode are available for your viewing. If you would like to share your feedback, Wisco facts, case suggestions, stories, or just whatever, please email us at contact at beercheeseandmurderpodcast.com. Don't forget to tell your friends, but most importantly, until next time, eat, drink, and be wary. Mm